Philip Pillsbury was a Yale graduate, a football player, and a tenor in the Glee Club. Born into a famous family, Philip ended up chairman of the Pillsbury Food Company. But on the factory floor, no other executive was as respected as Philip Pillsbury. He started out as a simple miller, a laborer like everyone else in the plant. And his three missing fingertips were proof. Whenever an employee shook the boss's hand, it was a reminder that Philip was not above doing the same kind of work that he was asking them to do. Pillsbury understood what it was like in the trenches, and his workers loved him for it. Well, in a sense, in the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians, we find a handshake from Paul in which he shows off his missing fingertips. There were false teachers who had come to Corinth after Paul had left town. They were criticizing and questioning his stature as an apostle. And up until now, Paul has been patient. In the first nine chapters, he's explained his ministry, his methods, and his motives. But now in chapter 10, hey, brother Paul takes his gloves off. He grows more aggressive, and he takes on his accusers. Paul's call was legit. How dare these charlatans belittle God's work? In essence, Paul holds up his missing fingertips, his scars and sacrifice to prove the genuineness and sincerity of his ministry. You know, in one way, the critics were correct. Paul wasn't physically impressive. He didn't have an overwhelming persona. He wasn't Greece's greatest orator. Yet God worked his strength through Paul's weakness. God showed himself strong on behalf of a battered Paul. Well, chapter 10 begins. Now, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You see, one of the er errors that the Corinthian Christians had made was to mistake meekness for weakness. You remember Numbers 12, verse 3, referred to Moses as the meekest man in all the earth. And yet the mighty Moses was far from weak. The Greek word translated meekness means power under restraint. It was used for a wild stallion after it had been broken. Meekness referred to the person who was submitted to the bit and bridle of the will of God. Paul had approached the Corinthians gently and meekly, but his enemies had interpreted his meekness as weakness. They were saying, he's kind because he has no clout. He's tender since he has no authority. They had mistaken his humility for a lack of ability. You see, the false teacher said that Paul could write a mean letter, but in person he was timid. Take away his pen and he'll just shrink away in fear. Well, Paul replies to that in verse 2. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Paul is saying, if you want bold, I'll bring bold. He tried to be nice in his first letter, but they took it the wrong way. And now he has to be more direct. So be it. You recall how old Balaam, he beat his burrow. Remember the story? His problem, though, wasn't his donkey. The animals swerved to dodge the angel that Balaam couldn't see. 
God pitied the donkey and he opened the mouth of the, of the donkey to rebuke Balaam. He said, what have I done to you that you have struck me three times? In short, who's the real donkey here? As Christians, we too are called to be beasts of burdens or servants. We bear one another's burden. But that doesn't mean we should let folks mistreat us. For like Balaam's donkey and like Paul, at times we too need to defend ourselves. You see, used and abused are not synonymous. Paul loved the Corinthians. He would lay down his life to serve them. But he wasn't going to remain silent while they verbally assaulted him in his ministry. He says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. That is, Paul was human like all of us. He lived in the flesh, but he didn't rely on human strength and ingenuity. He never resorted to gimmicks or to techniques that didn't depend on God's Holy Spirit. He says in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. You know, nations don't fight nuclear wars with conventional weapons. And neither do Christians fight spiritual battles with fleshly weapons. Bright ideas, and strenuous effort, and human manipulations are no substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, a bank loan, it might alleviate your cash flow crunch. But will it corral the greed that caused your overspending? Oh, that nicotine patch will help with withdrawals. But will it supply you the calm you need when you're stressed out and tempted to smoke again? A cold shower might relieve some sexual tension. But how do you conquer the lust that churns in your heart? A bottle of pills will get you to sleep at night, but it won't resolve the guilty conscience that kept you awake for so long. You see, here's my point. Human remedies may do some good, but real spiritual progress and permanent change is the result of the power and intervention of Jesus Christ. It always is. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but mighty in God. Paul tells us they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. That's what sin produces, strongholds. See, sin begins with just a wrong choice. But that wrong choice then becomes sort of an infatuation, a flirtation. Then it becomes a habit. Then it becomes an addiction. And it slowly digs into your life an inescapable rut. At first, sin enters our life at our own invitation. But ultimately, it outlives its welcome, and it becomes extremely difficult to dislodge. It turns into a stronghold. And you can't conquer a stronghold with just human cleverness or manipulation. See, when sin burrows itself deep into our psyche, it only gets uprooted from the inside out. It takes spiritual power to bust up a sinful stronghold. This is why we need spiritual weapons, like the truth of God's Word, like the power of God's Spirit, like prayer, like faith, 
love, the blood of Jesus, the word of our testimony, the name of Christ, fellowship with Christians, worship, wisdom, etc., etc. See, we need to be using these spiritual weapons to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. See, strongholds take root and they strengthen when we believe the world's lies. When we buy into doubts about God and listen to arguments against God. This is why Paul advises us bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. To level a stronghold, you have to see yourself and life in Christ Jesus. Is that how you view yourself in Christ? Do you see life from his perspective? That's how you bring down a stronghold. Here's Paul's strategy. Bag up your thoughts. Do you bag up your thoughts? This is a battle that's fought in our heads. We have to take charge of every wandering thought and every fickle emotion. If not, they'll run away with us. We need to make every impulse harmonize with the truth that's in Christ. It's like catching butterflies. Take your net and grab every thought and bring it under the will of God. Take every stray thought that you think and make it obedient to Christ. We need to train our minds to obey, not stray. Here's the question. Are we minding our minds? And he says in verse 6, And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul had disciplined these Corinthians. Some had repented, others had resented. Here Paul says, once you've reordered your thinking to obey Christ and cultivated a disciplined mind, once you're living a disciplined life, then God will use you to disciple others. Paul continues, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? Oh, the Corinthians were good at jumping to conclusions. They would size a person up before they heard his heart. This is what they'd done to Paul. And we need to be careful lest we do this to others. As you well know, our church has a large amount of road frontage on McDaniels Bridge Road. And sadly, our yard attracts an inordinate number of beer bottles. I think every drunk redneck in Gwinnett County saves their empty beer bottles to throw them on the front yard of Calvary Chapel. Well, for a time years ago, Pastor Jeff, some of you remember Pastor Jeff, he was in charge of the grounds, and he was the guy who gathered up all of the beer bottles. He'd collect the beer bottles, and he'd dump them in the office trash can. Well, one Sunday, one of the ushers, old Roy, if you remember Roy, he approached me, he pulled me aside, and he said, Pastor Sandy, we need to talk. And he whispered to me very seriously, he said, I think Pastor Jeff has a drinking problem. I keep finding beer bottles in his trash can. Obviously, he jumped to the wrong conclusion, which happens when we only examine appearances. At least our usher handled it appropriately. At least he came to the proper authority. He didn't gossip and spread false accusations like the Corinthians did about Paul. See, Paul writes, If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ's. 
See, some of the Corinthians had even doubted Paul's salvation. And yet if Paul wasn't in Christ, neither were they, since they were saved through the gospel that Paul had preached to them. He says in verse 8, For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. The last thing Paul was into was self-promotion. But the Corinthians were forcing him to defend himself. They'd accused Paul of writing intimidating letters. Paul's ministry was never to bully, but to build up. And yet to continue to do so, he needed to silence his critics. He says in verse 10, For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Again, they said, he's mighty with the pen, but the old boy's wimpy and tongue-tied in person. And there was probably some truth to this claim. There was a third century novel entitled The Acts of Paul and Hecla. And in it, it gives an interesting description, a physical description of the Apostle Paul. The work reads, Paul was small in size with meeting eyebrows, with a rather large nose, bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, full of grace, for at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. In other words, you weren't really impressed by his physicality, but oh, he radiated the glory of God. There was a spirituality about him. Other traditions say that Paul spoke with a lisp. As far as Paul's physical features were concerned, he was less than impressive to look at or to listen to. And this was as far as the false teachers were able to discern, for they looked no further than his appearance. I'll never forget the local radio station that refused to air our radio program, chapter by chapter. I will never forget the station manager said he didn't like my voice. He told me that. He said it wasn't radio quality. Well, I didn't argue with him. I figured it probably wasn't radio quality. I'm just thankful the quality of my voice hasn't limited God. He's taken and he's used that program all over the country and now all around the world. And yet this is what the Corinthians were saying of Paul. They judged the quality of his voice, not his message. The Corinthians liked pastors to be entertaining speakers. They fixated on celebrity pastors, those with an air of success. See, to them, slick was preferable to substance. It was flash over faith. It was style over truth. Warren Wiersbe once tells of a pastor he heard speak who was so eloquent but void of any biblical message. The friend sitting next to him sort of summed up the man's sermon with a verse. 1 Kings 19 verse 11, the Lord was not in the wind. A pastor needs substance to what he says, not just hot air. Verse 11, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Paul says that when he arrives... He'll show them how bold he can be. After his appearance, they'll wish he had written a letter. 
For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. You know, one of the challenges with Christian ministry is the difficulty we have in measuring our progress. It's not like a business where you can check sales or manage your profit margin. A pastor can faithfully sow the seed, but that's no guarantee how fruitful he'll be. You remember in Jesus' parable of the sower, he teaches us to expect a 25% success rate. That's not very good, is it? He says some of the seed will never take root. Other seed will be choked out by the weeds. Still other seed gets burned up in the sun. Only a quarter of the seed will take root. If your business is widgets, you can measure how many you make and sell and at what price. There's a bottom line, but not so to Christian ministry. And that's why it was foolish for Paul to compare himself with others. Verse 12, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Comparison is foolish, but how many Christians and pastors and churches succumb? How many people did you have on Sunday? How big is your building or your budget or your staff? Oh, we compare against each other. According to Paul, this is not wise. Remember, much of Christian ministry goes on below the surface. It goes on in people's hearts. It can't be seen. It can't be measured. A pastor can be faithful to disciple the 20 people God gives him, or he can be lethargic in his church of 2,000. It's faithfulness, not numbers, that constitutes success. He says in verse 13, We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. God defines success not by the volume of ministry you do, but how well you handle what you've been assigned. You see, we all have a sphere in which we have been called by God to be faithful. And Paul's sphere, he says, included the Corinthians. See, God would rather us all be thorough in what he gives to us than to expand our ministry and then do it sloppily. Are you being faithful in your sphere of ministry? Paul writes, For we are not overextending ourselves, as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Paul's goal was to be faithful in the scope of what God had given him. And despite what his opponents said, that included Corinth. They were part of Paul's parish. Verse 15, when Paul came to Corinth, he was not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors. Paul never took credit for what God did through someone else. Paul wasn't a glory grabber. He pioneered unreached areas. But as soon as he was gone, false teachers would come in. The Judaizers would enter and take over the churches the apostle had started. And this is how the cults operate today. They don't target unreached people. They prey on new Christians. And they spend deception on folks who aren't spiritually grounded. He says, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. 
Paul was into planting new churches in new areas. He was a pioneer. He went where no one dared to go before. And Paul wanted the Corinthians to mature so that he could move on to plant new churches elsewhere. For he says in verse 17, But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Here's a wonderful quote. It's from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. Jeremiah says, Glory not in wisdom, or in might, or in riches, but glory only in the Lord. You know, often Christians assume that spiritual success means successful service. Spend more time, do more stuff, and God will be pleased. But not necessarily. According to Jeremiah 9, true success has more to do with knowing the Lord than it does with serving the Lord. You recall Martha? She served Jesus frantically, running around the house, preparing for dinner, whereas Mary sat at his feet. Spent time in his presence. And you remember Jesus commended Mary. He said, for Mary has chosen the good part. Before we serve him, the Lord wants us to get to know him. And then chapter 10 closes. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. We can all pat each other on the back, can't we? Tell each other how good we're doing. Christians like to pass out awards to each other and boast of our accomplishments. But all that really matters is to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In the final analysis, that alone, the Lord's commendation, is what constitutes true success in ministry. That's the ultimate measurement. Well, chapter 11 begins. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. Now realize, Paul's line of thinking from this point onward was foreign to him. He didn't usually talk about himself. Paul's habit was to shun the spotlight. But here he now turns it on himself. He's forced to defend his ministry. Though necessary, Paul refers to it as a little folly. He says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. Now Paul wasn't jealous of the Corinthians. He was jealous for Jesus' sake. For his Lord deserved a loyal bride. What if you were the best man at your friend's wedding and you saw the bride sneaking off with another one of the groomsmen? Oh my, you'd hurt for your friend, wouldn't you? Of course you would. You'd feel the betrayal. This is how Paul felt when a Christian was disloyal to Jesus. He says, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. See, Paul viewed himself as a father, the Corinthian believers as a daughter, and Jesus as the bridegroom. See, in his day, it was a father's obligation to safeguard his daughter's purity until she was presented to the groom. And it was Paul's job to watch over the Corinthians and turn them over to Jesus, pure and undefiled. And as your pastor, I hope you know, this is how I see my responsibility. I'm a spiritual dad over a large family. I'm concerned if you stray. 
This is why I often take a protective posture. This is why we have elders who pray for you and are concerned about you. Verse 3 tells us, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And Paul was right to worry. Why? Because Satan is skillful. We have an enemy who wants to deceive. Ephesians 6 verse 11 warns us about the wiles of the devil. Do you recall the serpent's ploy in the Garden of Eden? First, he doubted God's word. He asked Eve, has God not said? He then denied God's word. You will not surely die. Then he distorted God's word. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. But he painted it as a desirable state. See, sadly, Eve swallowed his lies and ate the fruit. And we've all been suffering from spiritual heartburn ever since. Let's all stay true to the simplicity that is in Christ. A wise old pastor once gave some good advice to his young apprentice. He said, preach a full gospel. Christ and nothing less. A plain gospel, Christ and nothing more. And a pure gospel, Christ and nothing else. Let's not be pulled away from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, from which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. He's worried about these Corinthians. They could buy into another Jesus, or another spirit, or another gospel. And there are people out there selling other versions that aren't teaching the truth. These Corinthians had already revealed how gullible they were by putting up with the false teachers who had lied about Paul. He says, for I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. You see, the false apostles in Corinth, they went about with the title, most eminent apostle. You know, be careful if anybody comes in here and says, well, you need to call me most eminent. You know, that's a de- kind of a giveaway. God's full of himself. Literally, it means super apostle. And Paul laughs at this. These people have nothing on him. He was more of an apostle than any of them were. He says, for even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. Again, how do you evaluate a pastor? What gets said is far more important than how it's said. I've heard it put, the test of a preacher is that the congregation goes away saying, not what a lovely sermon, but I will obey. God could care less about sermons that sound good if they don't do any good. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. The Corinthians should have been ashamed for ever doubting Paul. He had proven himself before them. Verse 7, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? You remember while living in Corinth, Paul worked a secular job. I mean, the man made tents. 
He refused to draw a salary from the Corinthians, lest anyone accuse him of being in it just for the money. But instead of recognizing the integrity in this approach, the false teachers were saying that Paul didn't draw a salary because he didn't deserve one. That he lacked the credentials of a true apostle and pastor. Paul explains in verse 8, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. He took finances that could have gone to other churches, and he used them to support his work among the Corinthians. Verse 9, And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. The churches in Berea and Philippi and Thessaloniki supported Paul while he was in Corinth so he could work among the Corinthians. This approach had been so noble, and yet the Corinthians had turned on him and now doubted him. You know, I wonder about this today. I know pastors who love God in their congregations, and they make personal sacrifices to serve, yet they struggle to make ends meet. Whereas I see other pastors dominate and manipulate their people, and use them for their own ends. And yet the church treats the crummy guy like a royalty. Like a king. The pompous preacher is more loved than the man of God. It's a great tragedy. This is what happened in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah chapter 5 reads. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule by their own power. And notice. And my people love to have it so. Why is that? You ought to just leave those churches. It's sad, but fleshly people like fleshly, flashy, forceful pastors. They don't like men that remind them to walk humbly and serve sacrificially. Paul tells us in verse 10, As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. This is why Paul feels compelled to prove himself to this church. He loved them so deeply. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded, just as we are in the things of which they boast. Paul's going to boast. He's going to defend himself to silence the accusations of his critics. And then he says in verse 13, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. See, the false teachers call themselves super apostles. In reality, they were pseudo apostles. They were bogus. They majored in deceit. Paul said it shouldn't surprise the Corinthians to see Christianity feigned. He explains why. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Jesus referred to Satan as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Here, Paul calls him an angel of light. I like how Shakespeare put it. The devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Satan is a master of disguise. He goes by a million aliases. He has a zillion fake IDs and phony passports. 
The devil hates to be identified. Don't expect Satan to ever appear in red leotards and little horns and a pointed tail carrying his little pitchfork. Satan's too sophisticated to come to you as you might expect like that. The element of surprise is his most effective weapon. No, expect the enemy to attack wearing a short skirt and a low-cut blouse. Or as a father figure, an old guy you think you can trust. Or he's a so-called friend who tells you he has stuff that will help you kick your depression. Oh, just take this and your problems will be gone. Expect Satan to offer you a deal so sweet, you'll almost miss the fine print and overlook that one catch. Is it any wonder that alcohol has the cleverest commercials? Am I the only one that notices this? I mean, beer, the, the, the beer commercials are the funniest ones on TV. They're the cleverest. They always show beautiful people doing beautiful stuff, having a beautiful time. Why not show the truth for once? The dangers of alcohol abuse. I found a more truthful commercial. Trust me, you'll never see this on TV. Carp's signature summer ales. When friends gather, tradition, craftsmanship, and quality blend together into an affordable brain and liver poison we're sure you'll love. Because it's chemically dependence forming in a portion of the population, every bottle of Carp's is guaranteed to kill enough of your brain to impair your fine motor control, inhibitions, and judgment, but not enough to kill you, unless you drink enough of it. And actually, it's not even that much you have to drink. It tastes okay. How do we do it? We combine quality ingredients with small animals called yeast and a slurry of grain and water. They eat it and poop out the poison. Smooth, authentic poison. Then we seal them in a dark, airless container so they drown in their own poop, which we drink. Their rotting corpses form the bubble. That's addictive liver brain poison the way your grandfather used to order it. My family's proud of our long tradition of making fine gut poison. Carps, all natural. It'll make you feel different than you usually do, in a good way. But then the next day, it'll feel like you were poisoned, which you were. So don't be surprised or complain to us about it. I'm Roger, by the way. <laughs> I mean, why don't they be truthful? Paul concludes his caution on appearance, verse 15. He says, therefore, it is no great thing if his, that is Satan's ministers, also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Beware. If Satan can appear as an angel of light, his demons can appear with reverend attached to their name. Beware of bogus pastors, he says. And then verse 16, I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly. In this confidence of boasting. Again, for the sake of his own defense, Paul is indulging in a practice foreign to him. He's boasting. 
Verse 18, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. He's stooping to the level of the Corinthians. He's engaging in terms that they can understand. Read the next statement with sarcasm. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. (laughs) No, they weren't. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you. If one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face, why are you doing that? The Corinthians tolerated the exploitive practices of the false apostles. They allowed themselves to be entrapped by legalism and taken advantage of by greed and intimidated socially. And they even succumbed to physical abuse. And I see church members doing the same thing today in abusive churches. Why would anyone put up with such shenanigans in the name of God? Paul is amazed how gullible the Corinthians were. And he's angry that diabolical men were passing themselves off as apostles of Christ. Verse 21, to our shame, I say that we are, well, we are too weak for that. Again, notice the sarcasm. His critics have accused him of being weak. He's saying, yes, I'm glad I'm too weak to abuse people. Like you false apostles abuse them. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Paul will match credentials with anyone. These false apostles have nothing on him. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Despite what they claim, Paul matched their qualifications. See, Paul's love for the Corinthians reminds me of the man who asked his wife one day. He said, honey, did you ever love anyone before me? His wife thought a bit, and then she replied. She says, no, darling. I once respected a man for his great intelligence. I admired another man for his remarkable courage. And I was captivated yet by another man for his good looks and charm. But with you, darling, well, how else can I explain it except love? What motivated Paul to love the foolish and fickle Corinthians could have only been the love of God. Paul has reminded the church of his jealousy toward them, his generosity to them. Now he grows even bolder. He enumerates his sufferings for them. All that he went through to bring the gospel to these Gentiles. Verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. Again, Paul doesn't like to have to boast. Are they ministers of Christ? I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. And in the next few verses, Paul is going to hold up his missing fingers, his missing fingertips. He's going to reveal an amazing list of sufferings that he had endured for them, many of which go unmentioned in the book of Acts. All we know about some of these episodes we learn from this list. Verse 24. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Only one such beating is recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 16. Once I was stoned. This is mentioned in Acts 14 and again in Galatians 6. Paul was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. Only once is a shipwreck mentioned in the New Testament, Acts 27. But Paul says three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. <laughs> Tough ministry. This was the result of persecution from the enemy. But he also suffered from the execution of his, of, of his ministry. He says, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. These were just a few of the personal sacrifices that this man endured to bring the truth of the gospel to the Corinthians. And to top it all off, the icing on the cake, that was Paul's ministry. Verse 28, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And this may have been Paul's most relentless stress. It was the concern he carried every day. In all his waking moments, the health of the churches weighed on his mind and heart. All other issues were secondary to what he calls my deep concern. And as a pastor, here's where I know a little of Paul's heart. Even on my day off, I'm not completely off. I'm still thinking of you and of the folks here at Calvary Chapel who constitute this church. Your health and your growth is also my deep concern. And then he says in verse 29, Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? Paul got emotional when he heard of a believer who was taken advantage of or wounded in some way. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. Here's the surefire proof of his apostleship. Not the number of souls saved, not the number of churches started. Paul points to his sufferings. It's not being a star, but it's his scars that prove his legitimacy. Verse 31. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. <laughs> I love this. Paul has been boasting. So what experience does he use to illustrate the pinnacle of his success? How does he want to top off his resume? His preaching in Athens? His church planning in Asia? How about his sneaky exit from Damascus? He was lured from the wall in a little basket like a baby. Not exactly a flattering picture of a, for a promotional packet, huh? Here's Paul's point. The false teachers said that they were chosen because of their exceptionalness. Paul said the opposite. He was nothing special. And yet God used him anyway. What kind of a leader would you want to follow? A guy full of pride? Or a man dependent on God's grace? Rather than the prima donna, give me the guy with the missing fingertips. 
the leader who knows how to serve. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, what an emotionally charged passage. Lord, we just hear the heart of Paul breaking as he writes these things to a rebellious church. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to see clearly through the lies of the enemy. That you would help us, Lord, to bring down strongholds in our lives. Lord, that we would bring every thought into captivity to the knowledge of Christ, to the will of God. That we would learn to see our lives and others in Christ Jesus through your perspective. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would seek true leadership. That we would follow faithfully those that you have placed over us. And Lord, those that we can trust. And Lord, we pray for those leaders that you'll strengthen them and that you'll guard them and protect them. And Lord, that as they, as we follow them, Lord, may they follow Christ. Lord, we pray that you'll work in our hearts today. Lord, bring these truths home to rest. Help us to apply them, Lord, to our perspective. We pray it and ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Hey, let's all